We'll be in Psalm 19 today, Summer in the Psalms, going through a couple of the Psalms for the next uh, eight weeks now. I'm not really good at math. I mean, I did good in math at school, but not in day-to-day life. So we'll be, in the, we'll be in the Psalms for the remainder of the summer, and we'll be in Psalm 19 today. And the, the title of today's message is, Have You Heard? Have You Heard? Before we get into it, I want to pray for us. So we pray, pray with me. God, I ask that you be with us in this moment, that you open our hearts to hear your word anew, that we would hear your word and that we would see you for who you are and that we would respond, that we would leave here changed and transformed, not just hear another sermon or hear the word again, but that we would really hear it and that we'd see it for what it is and see who you are for who you are, God. God, be with me. Help me teach correctly and teach clearly, Lord. Thank you for again for this opportunity. God, we need you uh, every day, every hour, every minute. We need you now. Work in this place by your spirit. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you heard? Have you heard Psalm 19 before? This is one of the most uh, popular psalms. This was actually C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm, and he is a, a literary critic, an English poet. They, you know, he's probably read more poems than almost pretty much anyone here, I would assume, but he says this is a work of art. It is literary po- poetry. It is profound. It is deep, and it truly is. And I kind of was thinking, how to best describe Psalm 19? It has three, I would say, three movements. So first, it'll be creation declaring the glory of God, that general revelation, how we can see God in creation. And then second, it moves towards the special revelation of God in his word, how we see how God tells us how to live. And in that moment, we see we can't live up to what God tells. We can't live up to God's law. We're not perfect. And then moves to the final section, because we're not perfect, we need a savior. So it, it kind of drills down from general to special to we need a savior. And then it's kind of also like if you, you ever watch, one of my fav- favorite kinds of movies are those mystery, um, mystery movies where you don't know what's going to happen next and it's like a detective and you're trying to, trying to figure out what's, who did what. And so when you watch those kind of movies, it's, it's almost better the second time around, the second time you watch the movie, because you're like, oh, I know why they showed that scene. I know why they emphasized that they did a zoom in on this one person because he was the one that did it, right? So in Psalm 19, when you read it twice, when you go through and you already know that you're not perfect and you need a Savior, and then when you come back through again, now you can praise God because he has saved you. You see his creation. You can praise him. And then when you, when you come again to the wisdom, it tells us how to live. And you're like, yeah, I'm not perfect, but guess what? He saved me, and he's empowered me by his spirit, and so actually I can learn from his law now. And then, again, it goes back, it ends on the Savior, and you praise him all the, all the more because you, kinda, you, you do a full circle. So um, as I get into and explain uh, Psalm 19, I want, to, I want you to bring your whole life into this sermon. and Bring your life into the Word of God. Apply it to your life. This isn't just a, a separated Word of God moment where you have your church life on Sunday and then the rest of your life has no effect. They don't go together. But it should be everything that you're, is going on, your struggles, your pain, your joys, what you see on the news, everything can be brought in and be affected by the Word of God. 
So be, keep that in the back of your mind as we go through it. And so first, we see that the sky tells us something about the Word of God, which is the key word, if you're taking notes and like to mark down the key word, how many times I say the word sky, this, the word sky is the key word. So we'll look at what the sky tells us about God. So Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. So the two phrases there, heavens and expanse, are, are, they, they could be translated as the skies. The skies tell us something about God. And specifically, it tells us something about the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God? We sing about the glory of God. We want to glorify God's name. But what does the glory of God mean? It's, in the most general sense, it is who God is and what he's like. It, they declare who God is. They declare his glory, who he is, and what he is like. So they get, in, in the Old Testament, we see the, the glory of God can refer to his attribute of power, how powerful he is. And that, 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 that sense here would probably be best. The heavens declare the glory or the power of God. Because how, how wide and expansive, how big are the heavens, are the skies. God made all of it. And also, it could refer to other attributes of God. His perfection. They declare his perfection, his holiness, his kindness, his compassion, his justice. All those can be wrapped up in the glory of God, who he is. And is often tied to the visible manifestation. The visible manifestation of God's attribute. Because God is spirit, we see him by his, his deeds, the work of his hands. Again, the Psalms are poetry. God is spirit. He doesn't have physical hands. It is a, a metaphor to get us an image in our head that God made these things. And at times when God reveals his glory to people, they are in fear. They are in awe to see some, even just a glimpse of who God is. And since the skies are the work of his hands, they tell us of God's power. They can tell us of God's creativity to be able to create out of nothing this amazing world, the skies and the heavens. His ability to create. The creation declares a creator, how magnificent and powerful he is. We see this in verse 2. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. But how do they do this? I've never heard this guy speak to me, right? If you have, come talk to me after the service. <laughs> because verse 3, they're not talking about real speech. He explains. There's no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Again, this is poetic imagery to explain something. The, the, the sky does not use language. It doesn't use speech or words or a voice. And this is good news because you don't have to learn a language to understand the message, right? This is going to be a universal form of communication. It is where everyone, everywhere, throughout all of time, they can understand the message because it is not tied to a specific speech, word, or voice. We see this uh, point made in verse 4. Their message has gone out to the whole earth. The sky goes across the whole earth it, 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 in their words to the ends of the world. The message about who God is, his glory, his power, his ability to create, 
and other attributes can be understood from the work of his hands, the creation, the skies. So if this is the truth, if you can learn something about God from the sky, and you don't have to learn a special language, you, don't, you can just know it from being able to experience creation, what are the implications of this truth? First, for the Christian, implication for the Christian, for those who follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. This should lead us to praise God when you see the sky. When you see his creation, glorify him. That is, proclaim who he is. Announce the honor that is due him. Declare how powerful and wonderful he is. That is to glorify him, to say something true about God. That's what we do in our song. That's what we do in our prayers. That's what we do in our thoughts when we say true things about God. But we need to recognize before you declare those truths about God, it needs to be more than a declaration. We need to believe these things about God. We need to truly believe them in our heart. We need to trust that God is powerful. Do you trust? You say that he is powerful to create the whole world, but do you trust him in your moment of weakness? Do you trust him in your pain? Do you trust him for salvation? Do you trust that he is powerful to give you whatever you need? So we need to really believe that he is powerful. Second implication for the Christian, as the skies declare the glory of God, we don't need to just leave that left up to the sky's responsibility. We need to declare the glory of God. We need to declare the glory of God in both our voice, the message of God to others, but also in our action. Just like the skies can communicate beyond language boundaries and language barriers, our actions can communicate beyond language barriers. For example, the love that you have for your fellow church member, that can be seen whether you speak Spanish or English, whatever language you, you speak, it, it, it crosses a language boundary because people can see that you have a love for one another, that you take care of one another, that you pray for one another. We see this in John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. That is, everyone will know that you're a follower of Jesus. How? What, is, what are they seeing? If you love one another. They can see that you love one another, that they, you, they will see that you follow Jesus. And they say, I want to know more about their, who they're following. I want to know more about their God because I see how much they love one another. And that love can cross all language barriers. And so for the non-Christian, if you do not believe in God, if, uh, if you say there is no God, the implication of Psalm 19 is hopefully that you will see the sky differently today that you will see that it is someone had to create it, that you will see the power of God in creation. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, makes this point clear in Romans 1.19. He says, Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. So how did he show them about himself? Psalm 19, he's referencing Psalm 19, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature. So we can see his power and divine nature. Where can we see this? Where can we see these invisible attributes? They become clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood, here it is, through what has been made. You can know who God is. You can know that there's a God by looking to creation. 
We're talking earlier before the service about different religions and how some religions, the appeal to those religions is they have a secret knowledge that you have to be part of the group before you can know about their God or know about this um, ancient text. Christianity is totally different. We're teaching that God declares who he is in creation. It's not a secret knowledge. Everyone can know something about God, that there is a God through creation. And then also, we're proclaiming who God is even more clearly from the scriptures. This is not a secret. We want everyone to know who God is. Paul continues, as a result of this, as a result that everyone knows that there's a God by looking at creation, people are without excuse. So for the non-Christian, you have no excuse to say, oh, I didn't know that there was a God. I didn't see any evidence. It's clear from the creation. It's clear from looking at the sky. How they declare the glory of God, his power, his existence. That message goes out to the whole world. Every person has access to it. They are without excuse. They can't claim ignorance. They can look to the sky and see it. So if they knew that there was a creator, if, if Paul says they, they knew it, they see creation, they know that there's a God, but why doesn't everyone believe in him? Why doesn't everybody trust and worship him and submit to him? Paul explains why in verse 21. He says, though they knew God, they did not glorify him. You notice here, even the heavens glorify God, but people, some people, they don't even glorify him. They did not glorify him. They did not tell true things about him. They did not worship him. They did not show him gratitude. They did not show him thanksgiving. They did not thank him for everything that he has done. They heard the message, but they did not really hear it. If they did really hear it and understand it, they would uh, seek after God. They would say, yes, I see that there's creation, there's a creator, and I want to find more about him. I want to see what they're talking about. I want to find him and worship him and submit to his authority, give him thanks, show gratitude towards their creator. Instead, people do what they want to do. They, they want to be independent from God, not dependent on him in thanksgiving. They do not want to acknowledge every good gift is from him. They do not, do, they do not want to do the things God's way, but they want to do what is wise and good in their own eyes. In some, Romans one twenty-five says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worship and serve what has been created instead of the creator. You see how sin just flips everything upside down. Creation, the skies were supposed to declare who God is, the creator. But what do we do? We worship the created thing. Right? We're not supposed to worship the sky. We're not supposed to worship the sun. We're not worship, supposed to worship created things, idols, people, money, fill in the blank. We're supposed to worship the creator. Right? And so part of the application here for the non-Christian is I want you to see the sky differently, but also recognize that you can exchange the lie that you had back. There's no return policy expiration date right? There, you can have rebelled against God your entire life, even cursed him, and said, you said, there's no God. He, if he does exist, I don't want to have anything to do with him. God is gracious and merciful and says, you can come to me and be forgiven. You can get the truth. You can be, have, be saved from all your sins, as we'll see at the end of Psalm 19. And so for the non-Christian and the Christian alike, here's the challenge. The next time you go outside and when you look at the sky, 
Just take a moment, pause, and reflect on the glory of God. How much power God has to create everything. Reflect on the glory of God even when you feel the heat of the sun. As we will get into in, our next, uh, in the next verse, in Psalm 19, verse 4, the second half of verse 4, he turns not just to the sky, but now he gets very specific to the sun. It says, in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Now, when I first read this, I said, what is he talking about? <laughs> I don't understand. And so, I, you know, I was talking to Eloise about this. And I said, what do you think? What is, what is a tent for? And we talked and we came up with a conclusion. You know, tents are for where you live, where you stay, where you sleep, right? And so he, the heavens are where he's using a metaphor, again, poetic imagery, to describe how God placed the sun where it is for a reason. He has the control. He, has, he made the house for where the sun stays. He stays in the sky. He made the sky a little tent for the sun. And then you can also think about it like this. If the, when the sun goes down at night, it goes home in the tent where you can't see it. Now, again, this is poetic imagery. He's, he's showing how God is powerful enough to, to where he can talk about God making a tent for the sun. That's how big and powerful God is. And we see another poetic imagery of the sun in verse 5. He says, it is like a bridegroom coming from his home. So if you ever, how would a bridegroom, how would the groom be coming out of his home for going to his wedding? How would, what would his emotions be like? If you saw this person, what would you see? He would be excited. He would be happy. He would be filled with joy. He would have his wedding clothes on. He would be bright and brilliant, right? Just like the sun coming up on the sunrise, bright, brilliant, uh, extraordinary, He's using a metaphor to describe how great the sun is coming up um, in the morning. And then he uses another metaphor, um, the joy and brilliance of the sun coming through its course in the next uh, section here. He says, the sun, it rejoices like an athlete running a course. Now, I can't really relate to this as we were talking about before the service. I'm not a runner, and if I were to run a course, I would not be rejoicing. But the son can rejoice because he's an athlete, right? He, he's been trained. He's powerful. Running the course is what he does. It's easy for him to do, right? And so the main point of the description of the son is similar to the heavens declaring the glory of God. The son declares the, the glory of God. He declares God's power, his ability to create something as powerful, as bright, as hot as the sun. And not only did he create it, but he set it in its place. It set it on a course. If the sun was just a little bit off its course, we would either freeze or burn to death. God has placed the exact place it should be. And then second, the sun and its heat is a universal experience. As we see in verse 6, it rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. Just as the sky can be seen by everyone, everyone can feel the heat of the sun. It goes across the entire creation. Again, no one is without excuse. They have seen the glory of God in the sun. Everyone has some idea of God as evidenced by the creation of, his, of the sun. And we call, we call this general revelation. This is what we, God has revealed himself generally to everyone. 
But God doesn't just give us general revelation, but he gives us special revelation as well. He reveals things about himself through his word, through the Bible. As we turn to our next section, God's word tells us more about God and ourselves, things that we can't learn from the sky. So let's read Psalm 19, 7 through 9. It says, The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. In other words, while God's creation of the sky and the sun declare the glory of God, they tell us about something, how much greater is God's word? How much greater is God's word for us? While creation and general revelation leaves people without excuse, they can't say they didn't know that there was a God. We need special revelation. It tells us two main things. It teaches us how to live. You can't learn how to live by looking at the sky. Verse 7, we see this. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. This word for renew is the same word used in other places for to turn or to turn around. So, you literally, you could say, the instruction of the Lord is perfect. It can turn around one's life. It can put you on the course you should go. Just as God guides the course of the sun, he, can, he guides your life. He tells you where to go. It's the instruction of the Lord. And it is perfect. It is without error. This same idea and word is used in Psalm 23, verse 3. It says, he renews my life. He le- and how does he do it? He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Part of the way he renews your life and gives you a new life is that he sets you on the path that you should go. He sets you on the path, the right path of how to live. And then we should follow God. We should follow his instructions because they are perfect. He did not make any mistakes. And then the second half of verse 7 makes this point even clearer. It says, The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. So God's word is perfect, and it's also trustworthy. You can trust it. This is how God's word renews your life. It makes you wise. It makes the inexperienced wise. Because we're all born inexperienced. We're all born sinful. We don't we would often, as kids, believe whatever someone told us. We were very gullible. And we actually lean, even into adulthood, we lean towards wanting to do what is unwise. And this is really, really seen as parents, as you're raising your kids. You never would have to thought, like, did I really have to tell them that? For example, today, this morning, I say, Leland, can you close the bathroom door, please? And then he... He obeys, but he closes it on his brother, right? So I'm like, don't close, but don't close it on your brother. Like, I didn't think I needed to tell you that. Wait, for he's, wait before he's out of the doorway. We need help. We need to be shown where to go. We need this wisdom. The second thing that general revelation can't do, but special revelation can, what God's word can do is to show you how God can enable you He can enable you to follow him because he can enable you to do it in gladness. We see this in verse 8. 
It says, the precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. While a beautiful sunrise or a sunset might melt even the hardest hearts and rebels against God, those sunrises and that sunset will be short-lived. They will not be transforming. They will not be transforming like the words of God. The words of God can make you rejoice, can make your heart glad. Just like the sun rejoices like an athlete because he has no trouble going on his course, those empowered by the Holy Spirit can also run the race God has set before them because they are empowered by the Spirit. They can run the course, run the path that God has set them for. We can have deep, eternal joy knowing that we are seeking to follow God's ways for our life. We will have a sense of gladness, a sense of satisfaction that surpasses even the radiance of the sun. And the second half of the verse makes the reference back to this imagery of the sun even more clear. He says, the command of the Lord is radiant, or could also be translated as pure, without blemish, free from pollution. It is clear. Again, the word of God is perfect, right, radiant, pure. And what is its effect? It says, making the eyes light up. Just as the sun lights up the earth and shows you where to go, the commands of the Lord light up your way. They show you where to go spiritually. And because God's word teaches you how to live in this life with wisdom, gladness, and enables you to see how you should live, it also has an effect on how you should see and respond to God. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure. It's interesting here that he, he switches, he goes, the instruction, the precepts, and now the fear of the Lord. If he was following the pattern, he should have said, you know, the word of God, something like that. But he's, he's using the fear of the Lord here, I think, because as you see the law of God, it will cause you to fear him because he is perfect, he is holy, and you're not. We see, we see this idea, the fear of the Lord, um, in Psalm 2 last week, where the instruction of God should lead us to be humble, to be loyal, to be reverent in submission to God. Psalm 2.10. The ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Um, sorry, that's uh, the next one. Psalm uh, 2.10. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe, with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Or in Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we see the fear of the Lord and seeing who he is is connected to our wisdom and to our understanding and how we should live. Without first seeing God for who he is, perfect, holy, pure, and powerful, you can't begin to walk on the righteous path. Because as we'll see in the next verses, we aren't pure. We aren't holy. We need a Savior. We need to be cleansed. And the first step towards being forgiven and being cleansed is submitting to God and his truth. As we look back in verse 9, 19, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. God's word is pure, and when you respond rightly to his word, you can also be made clean, also be made pure. Just as God's word endures forever, so your purity will endure forever. Why? Why is this the case? The second half of verse 9, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. Just in case you missed the point, God's word is perfect. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It's perfectly right, altogether righteous. And because all of this, because of all of what we just talked about, what God's word is, we can say, verse 10, 
They are more desirable than gold, than than an abundance of pure gold, are sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. So if you do not see God's word as desirable, if you don't see it as delightful, then you aren't seeing it rightly. And here are just two possible reasons why you might not see it rightly. These are just two. There could be other reasons for sure, but here's two that I thought of. First, you don't believe that, there's, that God exists. That you may say, I don't think that there is a God, so you missed the first point. You missed that the creation declares a creator. Or even if you do believe there, there is a God, you may think that these words in the Bible are not really from him. Or if they are, you don't really like what they have to say, and you think your ways would be better than the ways listed in this book. So that's the first reason. Of course, if you have, if you have those presuppositions, if you have those beliefs, you're not going to see the word of God as desirable and delightful. But as we read it, as I explain it, I hopefully show you that you have the right understanding. You would see it as desirable, which is, kind of goes into the second reason, because you could say, unlike the first, you could say, yeah, I believe in God. I trust in Jesus. He's my Savior. He's my God. He's my King. I want to do whatever God's Word tells me to do. But talking about delighting, talking about desiring God's Word, that's a different story. It's difficult to understand. It seems like a chore. I don't really delight in it. So here's a humble starting point, really, for both people, unbeliever or believer. It's really simple. Basically, it's two parts. It would be helpful to seek out correct Bible teaching, to, teach what, to see what the Bible really is saying, and so you can better understand it. it. It can be difficult to understand metaphors used from 2,000 years ago, but being taught the Word of God can help you see how it is a delight, how it is desirable. And then second, read the Word of God for yourself. Find a translation that most, we have a lot of good translations. I'm using the Christian Standard Bible, but King James, New King James, those are going to be older translations, but if those can, if you can understand it, that'd be helpful, read the Bible for yourself. Find a translation that would make sense. Talk to me afterwards if you would like some advice on finding a good translation. Or for a sports analogy, basically you need a coach and you need to practice. By the power of the Spirit of God working through you, through the Word of God, you can begin to see a transformation, begin to delight, begin to desire God's Word. And God's Word comes with both a warning and an encouragement. So verse 11, In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is a warning to God's Word. There are negative repercussions for disobeying, for not following His ways. And also, there's a reward, there's a promise, there's encouragement. In keeping them, in keeping God's law, there is an abundant reward. So God's word includes a warning and reward, both here and now, for the here and now, and for eternity. For if you live as God created you to live, if you trust that his ways are better than your ways, your life, you'll be happy. Not that no problems will exist in your life, but that you will know that you're living on the right path, that you're following the way God intended you to live. And also, if you're following this path, if you trusted in, in him, then you will have eternal life. None of this is an earned reward. We need to be clear about that. You can't follow God's path on your own merit. As we said, none of us live up to it, that we will need a Savior, and we're almost there at the third section here. But if you're, you didn't earn this. You can't do enough good stuff to be made right with God. We need a Savior. 
which points to Jesus. And really everything in, in perspective that we've been talking about, wisdom, purity, happiness, finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Savior, Jesus. As we turn to our, our last section here, verse 12, God is our Savior. So who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. So again, you read the law of God and you see how perfect it is and how reliable it is, and you, then you realize, I sin. I mess up. And first, he talks about unintentional sins. Uh, that could literally be translated errors. Who can discern them? So he's talking about errors and sins. Who can discern them? Who can see them? I have done things that uh, out of ignorance. I, I, did not, I did not plan them, but I sinned anyways. And even these sins, he says, cleanse me from my hidden faults. We need to be forgiven and cleansed even of the accidental sins, the unintentional sins, the sins we can't see. And not only are unintentional sins need to be cleansed and forgiven, but verse 13, moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Because we need to be honest, we don't just sin on accident all the time. We may want to say that, oh, it was just an accident. Oh, it just happened. But if we're honest, we probably willfully sin more than we'd like to admit. We sometimes even plan out our sin. We say, how can I get away with this sin? Right? We plan out how we can cover it up. We delight in our sin. We have a sin problem. See, and here we talk about sin ruling over me. You're either ruled by God or you're ruled by sin. Everybody has a master. Everyone has a king. You can throw off the chains of God's law, as we talked about in Psalm 2. If you throw off the chains of God's law, you think that they're binding you. And after you throw the chains off, you'll look down and you see that I'm really bound by sin. They rule over me. It goes on to say, I will be blameless and I cleansed from my blatant rebellion. So God can forgive us. He can cleanse us of our uh, unintentional sins and even our, our blatant rebellion against him. That's how gracious God is. Can you imagine being the creator of the universe, pure, perfect, and holy, and the people that you created to worship you and glorify you, they're saying, no, I don't believe in you at all. I just curse your name. I don't want to do anything. I want to do what I want to do. And he says, I'll forgive you. I'll cleanse you from all that. That is just amazing. And we can only begin to seek to be blameless. We can only seek to be cleansed if God is our Savior. God is the one doing this. We're not cleansing ourselves. We're not earning our salvation. We need a Savior, someone to save us, someone to redeem us, as we see in verse 14. It says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So he says, forgive me, and may, my, may this prayer be acceptable, acceptable to you. And it will be acceptable because God is his rock and his redeemer. Now what does it mean that God is your rock? Psalm 18, verse 2, explains it like this. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That is what it means for God to be your rock. He's your savior, your deliverer, your stronghold, the one you trust in. What do you trust in him to do? What, do you, what is he saving you from? He's saving you from sin. 
as we see in Isaiah 44, 22. It says, I have swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me. Again, that image of turning around, renewing your life. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God redeems you by cleansing you from your sin. Rejoice, heavens, for the Lord has acted. Shout the depths of the earth. We see the whole creation glorifying God again. Break out into singing, mountains, forests, and every tree in it. Why? Because the Lord has redeemed Jacob and glorifies himself through Israel. Just as the heavens declare the glory of God, they say how great and powerful he is, and the law of God declares how pure and perfect and wise God is, those he redeems, those whom he saves, they declare how gracious and loving God is. They glorify him. And the way God redeems his people, how he saves them from sin and death, is through Jesus, his son. Not the sun in the sky, but the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Savior. We see this in Titus 2, verse 13. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he gave himself for us to redeem us, that is to buy us back, to save us from all lawlessness, and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. You see the order here? He saves us, and then we are eager and glad to follow the course he set for us. We don't do good works to earn salvation. We're saved for good works, right? You've got to get that order right. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, saves us from sin. He purifies us, sets us on the path of righteousness. And part of walking on the path, part, part of following Jesus, is declaring who he is. Verse 15, proclaim these things. Tell people about this. Tell people who Jesus is and what he's done. Because that for sure, that fact about who Jesus is, the Savior, that we need a Savior, people will not learn that from the sky. They need someone to tell them. Someone had to tell you about Jesus, right? Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? Someone to proclaim it. Someone to declare it. And yes, you can invite your friends and your family to come hear me, the preacher, tell this. But some people won't come to a church building. You need to go to them. You, need, you, you have a special place for your family, your friend's life, to be the preacher to them, to tell them about how, who Jesus is, what he's done for you. Look to God's word, his law, which is perfect, trustworthy, sweeter than honey, able to transform your life. Because it shows you your need for a Savior and points us to the Savior, Jesus. Of which Jesus ties everything together that we learned about in Psalm 19. The wisdom of God in Jesus. We find our purity and our cleansing in Jesus. All of which leads us to praise and glorify God. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 ties all this together. It says, It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. So we see Jesus becoming our wisdom for, for, uh, from God for us. He's our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. He makes us right with God. 
righteousness. He sanctifies us. That is, he makes us holy. He cleanses us. And then he redeems us. Just as God redeemed Israel out of slavery from Egypt, he redeems us from sin. He paid our debt. He paid our sin debt by dying on the cross. He redeems us from sin and death. We should praise God for his grace. And if Jesus has never been your righteousness, if Jesus has never been your sanctification or redemption, let this be the prayer of your heart today. As we go back to Psalm 19, verse 12, it says, Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Pray that God would cleanse you from your hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Pray that God would forgive you of your willful sins. Pray that he would take the master of sin and dethrone him. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from my blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May Jesus be your rock and your redeemer today and every day. We have Mark. Mark's not here. Oh, no. <laughs> We're going to have Kay come up and Rachel come up and lead us in a song of response. And in this time, I want you to uh, think about and pray. Uh, ask God to be your redeemer. Ask God to be your rock. Praise him for his creation. Praise him for saving you. And pray, just praise him with all that you are. I'm going to close this in prayer. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for explaining how are the right way to live and showing us our need for a savior. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your creation, that we can see how powerful and wonderful you are in your creation, God. Help us to see these things anew today. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.